You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Belgium's Ministry of Defense comes under attack via Log4j vulnerabilities. A cellular handover, man-in-the-middle exploit, is described by researchers. The FBI says an APT group is exploiting unpatched Zoho Manage Engine desktop central servers. The U.S. charges five Russian nationals with a range of cyber crimes. Coin miners in China feel some heat. Ben Yellen describes a meta-lawsuit targeting anonymous fishers. Our guest Todd Carroll of Cyber Angel explains the shifting tactics of troll farms. And Grinch bots aside, CISA and the FBI offer holiday greetings and advice. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, December 21st, 2021. Belgium's defense ministry told the news service VRT yesterday that the ministry had sustained an attack via log4shell vulnerabilities. The ministry's representatives said the incident began last Thursday and that while the ministry has been working to contain the exploitation and keep networks running, some portions of its networks have been unavailable. The ministry's Facebook page yesterday posted a note telling inquirers not to expect full service from its sites yet. The register quotes Belgium's Center for Cybersecurity, not a Ministry of Defense organization, as saying, quote, Companies that use Apache Log4j software and have not yet taken action can expect major problems in the coming days and weeks. NATO, whose headquarters are in Brussels, didn't respond to the register's inquiry about whether the Atlantic Alliance's networks were affected. Lavenier's take is that the incident was both foreseeable and probably preventable. The publication notes that the attack occurred four days after CERT-B issued its own version of the warning most national cybersecurity authorities shared, urging a prompt upgrade to Log4j version 2.17.0 or later. In fairness to the MOD, patching an issue like this isn't always easy or straightforward. There's no attribution so far of responsibility for the incident, Both nation-state intelligence services and criminal organizations have exploited vulnerabilities in Log4j, and some press mentions of Chinese, Iranian, North Korean, and Turkish threat actors amount to little more than a priori possibilities. Those were the countries whose intelligence services were first mentioned in dispatches as having begun to scan for Log4Shell. And an attack that degrades a network is certainly consistent with criminal activity— 
Some of the better-known gangland operations have taken an interest in Log4j vulnerabilities. ThreatPost, for example, has an account of the attack chain the Conti ransomware gang is using to take advantage of Log4Shell. Researchers at New York University Abu Dhabi have published research on a vulnerability in the handover procedures cellular networks use to preserve service with minimal latency for mobile users. They've demonstrated the possibility of man-in-the-middle attacks, specifically a new type of fake base station attack in which the handover procedures, based on the encrypted measurement reports and signal power thresholds, are vulnerable. End quote. The U.S. FBI warns that unnamed foreign intelligence services are actively exploiting a vulnerability, CVE 2021-44-515, in Zoho Manage Engine Desktop Central Servers, quote, Since at least late October 2021, APT actors have been actively exploiting a zero-day now identified as CVE 2021-44-515 on Manage Engine Desktop Central Servers, the APT actors were observed compromising desktop central servers, dropping a web shell that overrides a legitimate function of desktop central, downloading post-exploitation tools, enumerating domain users and groups, conducting network reconnaissance, attempting lateral movement, and dumping credentials. End quote. There's a fix available. Affected organizations are advised to apply the upgrades Zoho provided in an early December security advisory. Switzerland has extradited Russian national Vladislav Kyushin of Moscow to the U.S., where he faces charges related to hacking in furtherance of insider trading. Four indicted co-conspirators remain at large. He arrived in the U.S. on Saturday, and the charges against him were unsealed yesterday in the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts. The U.S. Justice Department says... Kliushin is charged with conspiring to obtain unauthorized access to computers and to commit wire fraud and securities fraud, and with obtaining unauthorized access to computers, wire fraud, and securities fraud. A conspiracy implies conspirators, and the U.S. alleges that Mr. Kliushin had four partners in crime. Moscow residents Ivan Yermurkov and Nikolai Rumayansov are also charged with conspiring to obtain unauthorized access to computers and to commit wire fraud and securities fraud and with obtaining unauthorized access to computers, wire fraud, and securities fraud. The U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts points out that Mr. Ermakov is an alumnus of the GRU, Russia's military intelligence service, and that he's also wanted for his alleged role in influence operations intended to disrupt the 2016 U.S. elections. Mr. Ermakov seems to have had fingers in several pies. He also faces charges in connection with hacking and disinformation operations that targeted international sporting federations, anti-doping agencies, and anti-doping officials, all of which allegedly occurred while Russia was in bad odor with the Olympic movement for bringing chemically enhanced athletes to the Games. Two other alleged co-conspirators, both of Russia's second city, St. Petersburg, are Mikhail Vladimirich Irzak and Igor Sergeyevich Slotkov. Mr. Klyushin, Mr. Ermakov, and Mr. Rumianchev, the U.S. attorney says, all worked for M13, a Moscow-based security company that said it offered penetration testing and advanced persistent threat emulation, which the U.S. attorney points out both seek exploitable vulnerabilities in a computer system purportedly for defensive purposes— 
The company's website said that its solutions were used by the administration of the President of the Russian Federation, the Government of the Russian Federation, federal ministries and departments, regional state executive bodies, commercial companies and public organizations. We hope they were a best-value provider. We'll add that Switzerland is a swell place to vacation, but they do have a functioning extradition treaty with the United States. If you're looking for a holiday spot, we hear Chelyabinsk is nice this time of year. China cracked down on widespread and power-hungry crypto mining operations back in May, but CNBC reports miners have been able to evade the law by spreading their operations out to make their consumption of electricity less obvious. This seems to be a case of the inherent difficulty of enforcement as opposed to the states turning a blind eye toward illegal coin mining. In any case, some of the miners CNBC talks to clearly worry about being brought to justice. Quote, We never know to what extent our government will try to crack down to wipe us out, one who asked to be identified by his nickname Ben said. Some are considering looking into offshoring their operations until the heat dies down. The regular dry spell that's drawn down water levels in hydroelectric dams has also been a problem for the coin miners. They're accustomed to moving their rigs around to take advantage of other power sources, but again, with the heat on, that's becoming harder to do. For all of their difficulties, CNBC says that Chinese coin miners account for about 20% of the global production of Bitcoin, but given too much official attention, they're increasingly thinking about moving to a softer environment, particularly America. So, listeners stateside, you may find Ben moving into a friendly part of your local power grid. Wired publishes an update on another holiday season problem. The Grinch bots that automate online ordering of in-demand products, toys, gaming consoles, and the like, in order to create scarcity and drive a lucrative reseller's market. And finally, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's CISA, and the FBI are offering some sound holiday security advice, even presenting it, and why not, in the homely form of a hallmark moment. CISA Director Jen Easterly and the FBI's Assistant Director of the Cyber Division, Brian Vorndren, seated with small presents and a nice snowman puppet between them, point out that while the holidays are times of happy distraction and lighter-than-usual staffing, there are still ways of staying safe online. They recommend identifying IT employees who can be available on weekends and holidays if you need to surge to handle an incident or ransomware attack. Remind your people to use strong passwords and not to reuse them in different accounts. Put multi-factor authentication in place for remote access. Ensure that potentially risky services like RDP are properly configured, secured, and monitored. Talk to your people about how to recognize phishing. And finally, as you resolve to remain prepared and alert, review your incident response plans. They close with warm holiday wishes, which we heartily return. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. 
You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. If you are a regular user of online social media, you have likely seen posts come by that are quite obviously the work of some sort of troll farm, laughably spewing misinformation or blatantly partisan points of view, repeated by multiple accounts that were created moments ago in a fit of algorithmic scripting. These troll farms continue to increase in number and sophistication, Todd Carroll is Chief Information Security Officer and VP of Cyber Operations at security firm Cybel Angel, and was previously Special Agent in Charge of the FBI's Chicago Field Office. I reached out to him for his take on troll farms. Well, we see them popping up um, all over the place. You know, they've been in Southeast Asia, um, you know, the old Eastern European countries. Um, now we see them more popping up in, in Africa. Right. So, I mean, they're, I don't think they're that very hard to find or they're being set up by on behalf of uh, a foreign nation uh, that is trying to potentially use that to push an agenda or to push a certain message uh, to influence uh, via social media, a certain cause or whatever. So, I mean, you know, for example, right. So you want an example on this. So if I wanted to push an agenda right behind a certain candidate versus another one. And I want to influence it from a foreign point of view, right? Whether it's uh, another country that feels that this would be more favorable or to actually increase the discourse between, you know, the population inside a country, then these trolling farms could push certain messages or whether it's true information or disinformation that uh, against the other candidate or in support of and that's what the information is. So it's it's looked at in social media that there is the messaging is is higher, you know, that the you know, I see this more so maybe it's the truth or the message is even being pushed out where before it it wouldn't be because the information is completely false. 
And what techniques do they use to put these messages out there? Usually the main social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter are probably the two most popular ones and probably will continue as that's where, you know, from if we look at it from a U.S. point of view, right, that's where a lot of people sit and a lot of people, uh, right or wrong, um, take a lot of their information and see what they believe is going on. If you keep seeing the same message over and over again, whether or not you are reading it or you're ingesting it or you believe it, then you kind of in your back of your mind, you're developing a, you know, is this the truth? Is it, is this what's going on? Is I, I keep seeing the same thing about this candidate or this cause or whatever the issue being pushed is at that time. What about the platforms themselves? To, to what degree are they trying to tamp down these sorts of things? Yeah, they are. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we, we see it all the time. Um, you know, Facebook is out there and saying they shut down 1500, you know, um, accounts that do this, but they're just going to pop up under something else, right? It's, it's, uh, a little difficult probably for them. I, I know they're spending more and more time, especially as the media is spending more time calling these fake accounts out. They're working on it, but it's not, um, you know, that's, Listen, Facebook and Twitter was set up to, for people to share information and share their opinions. And it's it's probably a little bit difficult for them to find these uh, accounts. But when they do, they've been you know, pretty reactive to shutting them down. You know, for organizations who are concerned about this sort of thing, um, what are your recommendations for them to keep on top of it? Is this, a, is this a threat intelligence type of thing or how should they go about it? Yeah, definitely a threat intelligence type because this is information that's being spread uh, that could be targeting your company, could be targeting your geopolitical views. It could be, you know, us as individuals, us as companies. So I think being aware that there's this activity that's out there, right? Not taking all of your information from one source, seeing when the sources are posted, right? If most of them are coming out of Africa, they're like businesses, right? They show up at nine to five. You know, uh, that time frame, you know, does most of the people, you know, in the U.S. post at three in the morning, right? <laughs> you know, I, I don't, well, I have some, some relatives that do, but um, we, we don't, it's kind of awareness that these things do exist and not just taking what's out there for granted and educating yourself, but then also calling out if you're a company, you know, this is information is wrong, working with the authorities or working with Facebook and Twitter to to call out these groups to get them uh, shut down, especially if they're targeting your company. That's Todd Carroll from Cybel Angel. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Interesting story uh, from the folks over at The Record by Recorded Future. Uh, it's titled Meta, Facebook, sues operators of— It's so 30- hard to get used to, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Uh, it's, they sue operators of 39,000 phishing sites— uh, this article caught my eye because uh, it uses uh, terms like describing this lawsuit as just weird <laughs> and uh, legal gymnastics, which I thought made it perfect for us to talk about here. Ben, what do you, what do you, what, what's going on here, Ben? Yeah, I feel like uh, you send out the bat signal every time you see legal gymnastics. Yeah. That's, that's my cue to, to enter. Right. So they are, Meta is suing basically 100 John Doe, so anonymous individuals, 
people who have actually sent out these phishing emails that are hosted through this, how do you pronounce it? I think it's NGROC. NGROC service. Yeah. Um, so they're trying to get an injunction against these John Doe's and um, damages of at least $500,000 from the operators of these sites. Hmm. So these are individuals who have created phishing links that are, you know, used to mimic sites that are under the meta domain. So like Instagram and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And obviously they're using those to collect your information. Right. What legal analysts have said here is this is a weird lawsuit because it's very hard to go after anonymous people who are who are posting these phishing emails right. uh, or this phishing material. We don't know who they are. It's going to be really hard to enforce it in court. Yeah. Um, and unless we can de-anonymize them, what I think Meta is trying to do here is set a precedent that this type of action will not go unnoticed, and there will be consequences if we you know, ever find out who it is. So it's huh. almost more about protecting their brand than it is about actually punishing phishing actors. Hmm. So, you know, sometimes you file a lawsuit to protect your brand. I get it. If I was Meta and I had billions of dollars in legal resources— you know, I'd want to show my customers that I, I'm going after the people who are making your life miserable, stealing your information. So I completely get it. I don't think we're going to get a um, favorable judicial ruling on this. Yeah, was just, so that's my next question. How, how does a judge respond when an organization like Meta puts this in front of them? Well, in a couple of ways. I mean, if it's an implausible claim that doesn't allege a proper violation of the law, then the judge can just dismiss the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could very well see that happening. If there is not an allegation that makes this worth going through our court system, a judge might just say, all right, this is a waste of time. Let's yeah. dismiss this <laughs> before <laughs> this goes any further. <laughs> right, okay. What they rarely do, but what they sometimes do, is say to these companies or to these attorneys, this is frivolous. You're wasting my time. Let's uh, impose some sanctions. Yeah. Um, so we've seen that in a number of circumstances where lawsuits are so frivolous where, you know, you have to basically prove that the lawyers knew that the suit was intended to be a publicity stunt or a messaging stunt. I see. And, you know, then you can try and get those lawyers disbarred or at least impose fines. I, you know, I don't know enough about this. I doubt we're going to get to that level, but I could easily see a judge just reading this over and, and dismissing it without commenting on the merits uh, yeah. of the phishing scheme. What if the judge goes along with it and says, absolutely, uh, here's your ruling. Meta has that in hand. What do they do with it? That's a great question. I mean, we do get rulings on anonymous individuals all the time, and you can enforce it. Dependent on the statute of limitations, if you you know if you ever get information on who that individual it is, uh, yeah. who that individual is. So if they're ever unmasked, uh, they could be charged or whatever or, or uh, fined. Right, because <laughs> it's a civil suit, right? It's a civil suit. So yeah. yeah, they'd be they'd be fined. They'd be assessed damages. Okay. Um. So yeah, I mean, if you're out there and and your identity is unmasked, if they were successful in this lawsuit, you know that means that. Wherever this person is, if we have an extradition treaty with them and they're overseas, then they could be brought into the United States uh, and forced to pay the civil penalty. I see. Uh, so it could put that shadow over them, maybe maybe make them think twice about continuing their operations if they have this specter of potential action against them. Exactly. And I think that's ultimately the most that's going to be done here. I see. You know, I also think it might, might go in the other direction where if a judge dismisses this suit, people, you know, will say, well, as long as I can maintain my anonymity uh, and collect from these phishing schemes and, you know, make make a little bit of money, I'm going to be pretty well shielded from legal liability. So, you know, 
Yeah. Might as well just stay the course on this one. <laughs> okay. Which, you know, could be dangerous. I think it's a gamble on the part of Meta. But, you know, I, I see why they're doing it. It's about their brand. And it's also about setting a precedent that these types of phishing attacks are, are not going to be acceptable on their networks. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, interesting development. Uh, ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. the cyberwire for links to all of today's stories check out our daily briefing at the cyberwire.com the cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in maryland out of the startup studios of data tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies our amazing cyberwire team is elliot peltzman trey hester brandon karp eliana white peru prakash justin sabi tim nodar joe kerrigan carol terrio ben yellen Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.